Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 227. This episode was made possible by a grant from the Marketplace in Crown Heights in honor of Chai El. Today is Tezvov El, the 15th of El, which is an important day in Chabad. It is the day of the founding of Temchit Mim Lubavitch by the Rebbe Rashab. 121 years ago, in the year Tofresh Nun Zayin. That would be the equivalent of 1897. It was the year when the Friedrich Rebbe got married, Just not just the year, just a few days before, Yud Gimelel, and on Tezvavel was the official establishment of Temchet Mimim, which was a historic day, because the establishment of the yeshiva wasn't just another yeshiva, as the Rebbe Rashab writes in Kuntres Eitzachayim, which was essentially the mission statement of the yeshiva, that it was hard for him to write to establish this yeshiva. Remember, there was no official Chabad yeshiva, not by the Alter Rebbe, not by the Mitla Rebbe, the Tzemach Sadeg, or the Rebbe Marash. There was a Cheder, there was the Yeshvim, there were people who studied, but official yeshiva. So he says that's a Gevalgad that Rebbe Rashab writes out somewhere, or said, it's a Gevalgad, Gevalgad means on the ill. He kept on, Gevalgad literally means wandered, but it means that he kept on agonizing over the question whether he should establish a yeshiva. And he did and said, it's not that we have many yeshivas. This yeshiva was essentially a training ground for an army. I'm paraphrasing. An army of students that would be armed with teda, niglu teda, especially primisat teda, to be able to fight the battles that would be coming. Remember, in 1897 was the beginning just of the dawn of the 20th century, which would bring great battles in many ways. The Rebbe Rashab literally had the prescience and the prescience and the foresight as a visionary, especially in a sikhi he said a few years ago, the famous Kola Yetzel and Mohammed's based David, establishing that this is going to the Mohammed's based David, the soldiers in the army of David, to fight assimilation essentially. He speaks about two generations to fight against people who will fight against God and Taylor, and the people who will fight against and, despi- and, uh, re- and uh, mutineer against Mashiach. But essentially training Bochnim that would become soldiers, which of course came to fruition above all in the Rebbe's times, when it was possible. Remember then, in the early of the 20th century, the upheavals began. They ended up leaving Lubavitch and had to move to Rostov in 1917, 1916, at, 19, at the end of 1915. And then, of course, the upheavals of World War I, and World War II, and all the the... the, the the tragedies and destruction, and of course, above all, the uprooting of the communities till that everything became to America in 1940. So really, peaceful years began in, late, in the mid-20th century, and of course, under the Rebbe, where Temchit Mim became actually the training ground, essentially incubating and training the talent that would go out and become shluchim, and shluchis all over the world. So the 15th of El today is the day when we honor that which of course is a recommitment in applying chassidus to us, a recommitment to this mission, a recommitment for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, dedicating ourselves to being these soldiers in the army, spiritual soldiers, tzivus Hashem, in the army of God, and that is to fight every force that goes against God and against Torah and against chassidus, but not fight, God forbid, in a way of a war with weapons, it's a war of light. We do this through light. Neiris lahoyer was the expression. That the tmimim are neiris lahoyer, candles that illuminate. We do it through anon poli yamamanan, 
through spreading light. When light is spread, it automatically dispels the darkness. Much can be said on this, but in a way you could say every episode of My Life Chassidus Applied is essentially learning how to spread this light, how to deal with different dark situations, and learn the Chassidus methodology taught us by the Rabbeim in this yeshiva, and uh, taught us how to apply it to life today. So really everything we talk about is really a result and outgrowth of this. And this is Chassidus. Chassidus is the study of the Neshama, the study of God, the study of God's purpose. Of Seder Ishtalshal's understanding the dynamics of creation and the dynamics, above all, of fulfilling the purpose of creation. And Temchet Mimim, the establishment of Temchet Mimim 121 years ago, is essentially geared toward that. Now, why there was no yeshiva before that? So we could discuss it, and uh, I may have discussed it in the past. I'll just share a few thoughts on that briefly. Everything has its time. Everything has its challenges. The Alter Rebbe, in his time, he had the Chederish and Chedershen, he had his inner circle, who he taught Chassidus to in his method. As a matter of fact, then Bochrim were getting married at a very young age. They may not even been the right time to establish a yeshiva for them. And the real circle around the Rebbe were the people who were already, either Alter Chassidim or Chassidim that were established and so on. You could say in those insulated years, the Rebbe Alter Rebbe through the Rebbe Marash, in those insulated years, living in Lubavitch, for most of those years, the Mitla Rebbe moved to Lubavitch. In 122 years, the Mitla Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the Rebbe Marash, was all in Lubavitch. In that type of environment, they had the so-called, you can say, the right insulation and the right immunity from forces outside that was able to maintain and hold up to the standards and being able to teach the method and the approach of Chassidus. The Rebbe Rasha began to foresee what was coming, how the world was changing. As I said, by 1915, they already had to run away from Lubavitch and all that would come afterwards. Therefore, even more need, there wasn't that centralization that existed, a more need to actually train people in the methodology in a very formal way and as much as powerful, as much a powerful way to empower them to deal with all the challenges out there. This would be one basic reason. I'm sure there's more to say on this, but that one basic reason, and we see the results. We see the importance of it. Okay. It's also this week will be Chayel. Chayel is on Wednesday. Chayel, of course, is the birthday of the Shnei HaMe'eris Hagdelim, the great two luminaries. The Baal Shem Tov, in the year Nachas, equivalent of 1698, and the Altareb in the year Kohos, equivalent of 1745. So they're both born on Chayel. And of course, the connection to Chayel, we find in many sikhs of the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe elaborates Chayel brings a chayis, a life, a vitality into El, which of course is the whole essence of Chassidus, and the gili of Chassidus of the Baal Shem Tov, of Chassidus HaKlolis, the general Chassidus, and the Altareb of Chassidus Chabad, both to bring light, to bring light, the light of Teda, Nishmosa, the rise of the soul of Teda, the light of Teda to illuminate and to vitalize and to energize every aspect of Yiddishkeit. So it's not that it wasn't there before, but because Eden were in a state of Yisalfus, like in a comatose state, the Baal reawakened the Etzim HaNashama, and more importantly gave us the tools. Like it says in some places that the Baal taught us that every person can serve God. And the Alter Rebbe taught us how everyone can serve God. The analogy the Friedrich Rebbe gives for this, probably from earlier sources, is that the, Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, the Baal provided us a ladder to climb to heaven and to connect to, trans, to transcendence. And the Alter Rebbe taught us how to climb the ladder. So Chassidus is an illuminating force. It's Eir. 
And like Chayel, Eir and Chayis, Chassidus talks about Eir, Chayis, Kayach, but in general, Eir is also energy and vitality. So it brings a Chayis into Elul, as the Rebbe explains, Elul and all its acronyms, which covers Teira, Tefillah, Gmilas, Chasodim, the three pillars upon which the world stands and also the personal microcosmic world, Torah study and prayer, service of the heart and good deeds, good actions, Gmilas, Chasodim, kind acts, and also the two other acronyms, one that alludes to tshuva and one that alludes to geula. So you have the entire spectrum of Jewish life and chayel infuses all with the chayis. Since this is also the week of Pasha Kisove, so let's connect it as well with that. And then we'll connect it with the sixth week of the Shiva and Nechemta as we've been doing in the last five weeks. So, What's the, what's the connection to Pasha Kisove? So the Rebbe speaks about Kisove, Elo Oretz, that Kisove means be a, a, a pnimis, that you're going, entering into a pnimis, which is the whole purpose of Chassidus, especially Chassidus Chabad, that takes Teda and turns it into a pnimis, instead of it just being a Muna, and which can be Makivdik, can be, so to speak, not permeate, not penetrate the person, Kisove Elo Oretz, as you'll enter, and enter with the entire meaning of it, the whole, having an intimate entry into the experience of Yiddishkeit. So you're having a connection that is internalized and integrated into our beings, which is a general theme of Chassidus. But especially with the Haftarah of this week, which is the sixth week of the Shiva and Nechemta. So it begins, Kumi Eri, Kivo Erech, Vekved Hashem, Alayich Zorach. Ki hini acheshech chichas orez, Varof l'umim, Valachi Yizrach Hashem, Vekvede Yelecha Yirah. This is the whole theme of Chassidus. First of all, the theme of Teda in general. What's Teda? Teda is Teda Eir. Ne'er mitzvah v'teda Eir. Why Eir? Why is it connected to light? Because we live in a dark world, like he says. On its own, you look around, and you can be very confused. What is right? What is wrong? What's moral? What's unethical? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? Comes Teda. Think of it like a blueprint. Or you could think of it also like a lighthouse. Like headlights. A map, a road map that allows, shines a light that allows us to see the roads, where to travel, where not to travel. Here's the actions you should do, what you shouldn't do. In the dark, we can be confused and go on the wrong road, not what to know which is the right road. So Teda illuminates. In Teda itself, is Primis Teda, which is, of course, the Gili of Chassidus. But the connection goes off even deeper. There's a famous, a famous Zion Tatus. Five years before the Isyazus of the Yeshiva, 1892, which would be 126 years ago, the Rebbe Rashab revealed that he went up to Ganeden. And he heard seven Tatus of the Baal Shemta, the Baal Yemeladus of Chayel. Seven Tatus. The Friedrich, no one knew of this until Tafresh Sadik Zion, 45 years later, when the Friedrich Rebbe revealed it in his Sikhs, and now printed in the Chutte de Burim, and it's printed in Chasr Shemtov. Of the Zion Tater, the seventh Tater is on this Pasuk, Kumi Eri. And what is the Tater? The Baal Shemtov said the following on that. It was by the Shalash Shudas. He said seven Taters that Shabbos, in front of the men, the women. This whole thing is discussed in many places, especially in a Sikha in Tov Shin Mem Zayin, 
50 years from Tafresh Sadik Zayin and 95 years from when the event happened in Tafresh Shun Beis, but the Rebbe spoke about it, Shabbos Sovek Mem Zayin, which you can look up and say for Asichas Tafresh Mem Zayin. And what's the seventh Teda? Al Pasuk Kumi Eri Kavoyerich Bekweda Vayla. So he says, the Maimedic events in the Sea of Israel. This Maimed, this discourse was said to the leaders of Israel. And he said to them, Atem Nisi Yisrael, you leaders of Israel, that you were set aside, you were ready to compromise, so to speak, your Tate and Aveda for the benefit of the public. What will be with you? Comes the person and says, This is Kumi Eri, Prati that this air prati, as you as you apply yourself to the air prati of the individuals of your people, that will come back to you, and that not only won't be compromised, you'll get even more power and more light. Like he says that the, there was a nozer nusach of this teder where he spells it out here. It's chaser, the end. You don't have the whole teder, but there's another version where he says that you that is that masasik darke So the air prati is what every soul has. And the air clawly is the shamis is clawly. So kumi eri, that's the air prati. Eirech, that's the air clawly. That's what it says. Kiva eirech, kumi eri. That's when you rise and shine. To whom? To the people that you are dealing with, which seems to be like putting yourself aside. What will be with you? So the pasuk continues. Kiva eirech, you'll get the light. Bekvayd Hashem, Allah and God will shine upon you. With an additional light, so not only will you be missing anything, you'll get even more light. As he explains this at length in Sichas of Chayel, it's all printed in Kesar Shemtev, by the way, where it's all collected. Um, and the Rebbe says there that this is a lesson not just in the Sea Yisrael, but to all of us. Even though this last Maimah was said only to them, or was focused, geared to them, but all of us have to also, in a certain a more Mezoyed Ampin, in a certain way related to us, have to also sometimes forego our own Aveda, in order to help other people. And the Pasuka refers also to us how our light is not going to be compromised. So all this comes together in this week, Chayel, and of course connected to Chayel, which is the Shnei HaMe'eris HaGdelim, the two great luminaries that were born, which is again, Moir, Oyer, as the Rebbe explains the connection. The Oyer of uh, the Moir of, uh, the, of Barshamtev and the Moir of the Alter Rebbe, who is also called Shnei Oyer, two lights, the light of Nigla, the light of Primis Atere. And how permeates Zalman, which is the letter Zman, Lizman, that permeates and also affects time and space in this world. So, all this comes together in, in lessons we can apply to our personal lives. And finally, let's just so relate it to the sixth week of the Shiva de Nechemta. As you may recall, I've been going over the dialogue between God and the Jewish people, as the Avadram cites from the Medrash, that this is an ongoing dialogue of seven weeks of consolation. So what is the ongoing dialogue this week? After we've been consoled, and not just consoled, but consoled by And that consolation has grown last week, in the fifth week. In the sixth week, we say, not only are we consoled, but it also affects those around us. It affects the world around us. That even a dark world, even a dark world, where darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness, the peoples, but God will arise over you, and His glory will be seen and shine, and even nations of the world will come to your light. 
So what you see from this is that the light is illuminating. It's not only that the Jews are consoled for the destruction that happened in the the Tlosa de Paranusa, the three weeks of affliction, before till Tishabov, between the 17th of Thomas and Tishabov, not only are we consoled and only also elevated through a double consolation and Anechi Anechi coming from the highest levels, but it also affects the world that the world will be transformed. So we see that a Bailam B'Kedish, an elevation in the message, in the dialogue that it's coming now, it's conform, coming to transform the entire world. And when you look at the Teda of the Baal Shem Tev on his birthday of the seventh Teda, you see the message relating to the seam, of course, and as the Rebbe explains to each one of us of how that light affects the entire world, where the entire world will be transformed into a world of Gula Mitis Vashlema, which is the purpose of Chassidus, as the Rebbe Baal Shem Tev heard from the, from the from Mashiach, when will you come? When the well, when your wellsprings, Mashiach said, the Boshemta will be spread chutzah, in a world of chutzah. Chutzah shein chutzah that even the cheshach, the dark universe, your light will shine and affect the entire world. Okay. With that, let us go to some questions. I will use this opportunity to first of all cross-reference this discussion about Chayel, about Temchit Mimim, to episode 82, where I discussed all of this more at length. And this is a good opportunity to tell you that we have a rich archive of all previous episodes at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There you can also submit on the forum a completely anonymous and confidential questions or comments, impossible to trace, so you have to not be concerned about your identity. If you do want to share who you are, and you want us to contact you or either send you material or something you'd like us to provide for you, please include your email in there because that's the only way we can contact you. And I'll go to opportunity as well, a great opportunity to sponsor these programs. We survive on your sponsorship and on your generosity, especially as we are in the month of Elul, which is a custom to add, add in our um, charity. So please consider sponsoring and honoring someone, that a loved one, some memory of someone, and one of these programs, or many of these programs. And you can do that at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Questions now. Juggling act. How can I balance Hidur Mitzvah without becoming obsessive-compulsive? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I feel that when it comes to certain mitzvahs, I can get very obsessive-compulsive. In my terms... I would call it Surmarava Setev, where, for example, to get straight to the point, I get very obsessive trying to make sure I'm not having the wrong kavana during intimacy. I'm afraid I'll be acting for the wrong reasons. I'm afraid it will turn into an animalistic act by me. And then I try to think about the right kavana, but I'm afraid as well that I lack the, con- the correct intent. I guess my question is, how does one balance these two sides of a mitzvah in general, and intimacy specifically, where I'm juggling both aspects of staying away from the wrong intent while connecting to the right intent, this is where the obsession comes in. Okay, so we have spoken in the past about religious OCD, and I'll refer you to episodes 213, 214, and 217. But the question is phrased a bit differently, and they're always good to review sometimes certain ideas, especially they come up in different, different times. So response essentially is obviously we have a tailor that also bavodens and also anticipates this issue. For example, you have a Gemara in Rishalmi, famous Gemara cited many times by the Rebbe, about Nadorim, Nazir, 
A neder is when someone takes upon themselves a vow. In addition to what it says in Tehidah Mitzvah. So you don't need a vow to mekayim Tehidah Mitzvah or to avoid leisase, the negative mitzvahs. You take an additional vow. Let's say a nozir. Not to drink wine, not to cut your hair, to abstain from certain things. So it says in the Gemara, it's actually dismissive of this. It says, Dayech masha oslacha Tehidah. Should be enough for you what the Tehidah forbade. Prohibits. You don't have to add. You don't have to be more religious than God, basically. That's why there's a mitzvah that says don't add and don't subtract. Don't subtract. Everyone understands why. God gave mitzvahs. You can't. You don't have a right to subtract. But why not add? Somebody wants to be frumer. So the basic answer is very straightforward. God knows exactly what we need to do, what not. But even more than that, when you add, who are you to add? You're becoming a partner. So if you're a partner today in adding, tomorrow you could decide, you know what, today I want to, tomorrow I want to subtract. Do what God says, you don't have to add anything. So when a person is doing mitzvahs, yes, we have vidurim, and we have things that we do that are you go beyond the letter of law, you go, you're more medagdic. But to prevent OCD is very straightforward. Go to a mashpia, go to a rov and ask him. Why are you doing it? Because you are obsessed or because Gaid wants you to do it? If it's because God wants you to do it, follow what God says and not more. We can be subjective about ourselves because we can start saying, maybe I should be more medagdic, maybe I wasn't careful last year, now I have to be more careful, especially in the month of El. That's why we need objective opinions because it could be your own obsession. It has nothing to do with God and nothing to do with Tehra Gedusha. And the same thing I would answer to this question here. Do not, your obsessions are yours. It has nothing to do with Tehra. To dress it up and say, I'm being careful with Kavona, how do you know that? Maybe it's just your own thing that you also do in other areas. Above all, the Torah doesn't say to do that. And we find many times that Rebbe says about Heschadas when it comes to issues of inappropriate sexual behavior and so on, that Rebbe says, Heschadas. Heschadas doesn't mean you sit all day not to think about it. Even saying extra tilim that Rebbe says is thinking about it. Do other things. Get yourself mind away from this. When you're in an intimate state with your spouse and it's in a kosher way, it's a Torah way, the Torah says you have to be sitting and thinking every second. People on Madregas that are shy to that, that's their thing. But you have to do be normal, be human. In the, in the Mizgeris, in the structure of Torah. And if you have a doubt, listen to Rav. And the Rav says, there's nothing to obsess about. And you're still obsessed, then you know clearly you're not listening to Torah. So you're actually being Aver. The thing you want to do is be Mahadir. You're actually being Aver because you're not listening to Rav or Mashpia that tells you that's the area you can just do, be calm and relaxed. Menuchas nefesh Tater that turns into obsession is not tater. That's We are obsessive and we're just using tater in a way we're machalal, we're actually desecrating tater by doing that. So that's my response in addition to what I referred in the, in the cross-referencing. Next question. Are the Rambam's dietary directives the proper halachic Hasidic way to eat? I could always tell certain people writing because I see they give they made their title. I'm just doing it for a little entertainment purposes, but not adding, just as reading the way the letter was written. Supreme Ashpia Jacobson. From what I remember learning in Lukutis Sichis, the Rebbe explains that the reason why the Rambam put his dietary laws in his halachic compendium is because they are indeed halacha and as such relevant for all times, as halacha is in general. As such, it would seem that the halachic way, and maybe indeed the Hasidic way to eat, is as the Rambam teaches. Yes, it's correct. The Rebbe does speak about Medarke Hashemu, Guv Bari Vishalom. 
The Rambam says that, it, I mean, in addition to, well, let me put the whole context. In Hilchah's day, as the Rambam says, that a guf body v'shalom, a healthy and complete body, is from the ways of serving God, because God wants, wants a healthy body, a healthy spirit, a healthy human being, because then you can do mitzvahs well. So that too part of serving Hashem. And therefore, the Alter Rambam, in Halacha, not just as nice advice, Halacha advice, added directives of how to eat and different dietary and other health directives. This big shock of Italia in commentaries, some of these directives don't seem to apply today. Either because they're outdated, because Rambam took it from his time. So how do we see that as halacha? So the Rebbe has already sikhs explaining how the refus and shas, including in the Rambam, could be that the world changed in some way. So there's certain truth to what he writes, but it may not be applicable. But that's case by case. But there are many things that Rambam does write that are applicable. How much to sleep, how a person should eat. So the question is, I cannot go and say that the Rambam is the only correct halacha chassidic way to eat. The Rambam is not talking just to chassidim, he's talking to all of us. Chassidic is also not just for chassidim, to be honest. But I would say that, yes, the Rambam's directives definitely contribute to the approach how to eat. Now, we also have directives from the Rabbeim and others, the, 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 the eating with edelkeit, not overeating, and all the other rules, that how a chassid, how he eat, eats. But there's no problem saying that the Rambam is part of that uh, corpus that gives us directives of what is the proper way. To follow the letter of the law of the Rambam, some say if you follow it's a very healthy approach, eating, never eating when you're full, eating only till a certain amount, not overeating, etc., and other aspects that he says, and there's no reason not to follow it. And many, there are books written, actually, that describe the method of the Rambam, which, of course, concurs with other approaches, both even secular approaches, in, the, in what is considered healthy eating. So my answer is overall yes. I have not, as I said, I don't know if you can just use the Rambam. That is the way to go, because we have other directives that came from people after the Rambam, also Bari Samcha, and of course from the Rabbeim themselves, the Chesidish behavior and how and what's the proper way to behave, to eat, what to eat, and, over, and, and, and indulging and not indulging in the Skafia and all the other things that Chesidish adds to the discussion. Okay. I will refer you to episodes 203 and 204 where more of this is discussed. Again, if any question I ask is you feel the answer is not adequate or you have another way of looking at it or you want to add something by all means, please submit it to meaningflive.com slash mylife, and I most likely will address it or add or read your note. So please feel that your partner is in the effort here of turning this into a very um, dynamic platform for all of us to contribute to in applying chassidus to our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Another question. As a ger, I wonder at times whether my mitzvahs have any effect. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, <clears throat> sorry. Together with my parents at around age six, I became a ger, a convert. My parents always thought they were Russian Jews because they thought the religion came from the father, and both my mom and dad's father were Jewish. When they found out that they weren't halachically Jewish, they went through the proper, ste- proper steps to become full observant Jews, now living a Chabad life together with me and my three siblings. I am 24 years now, married and in Kailal. Baruch Hashem, I feel very lucky to be given the life I have. However, there is something that always bothers me, and that is that I feel like my actions have no effect. I ask myself at times, how do I know that going to the mikveh made me a Jew? How do I know that tefillin connects me with Hashem? Etc., etc. 
always bothered by these questions of how do I know? I know the answers that I must believe, but it's hard. It shakes up my whole existence and what I do in this world. I was wondering if you could shed some light. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the note. And uh, my heart goes out to you and your feelings. <clears throat> However, as you shall see, there's nothing that you should be concerned about at all. Let me just begin that with that statement. But I want to refer you also to episodes 91 and 219 where I spoke about issues related to this. It's not a direct answer to this question, but it's a cross-reference. First of all, the same question you can ask, anyone could ask. Whether you're a ger or not a ger, whether you're a born Jew or you're a converted Jew, a piyalocha, <coughs> you can ask that question. You do a mitzvah, how do you know it's having an effect? Most of us don't see it, most of us don't feel it. But we're told very clearly that when you do what God wants you to do, yichud zen nitzchi l'mayla l'mayla says in Tanya, when you do a mitzvah, it has a yichud above, that's forever. More specific, that yichud affects even this earth. But like Siddur sometimes gives the examples, like a munach b'kufsa. It's like an energy released that's still in a, locked in a box. When Mashiach comes, when the box opens up and the light is there. So the world has been transformed by mitzvahs. And we actually do see it in the fact that the world is a much more refined world, a freer world, in so many ways, especially how Jews benefit from it. But that's a side discussion. But the question could always be asked, do we see the effect? How do we know? So number one, we're told. Number two, sometimes you could see it. Number three, it makes total sense. God created the world. Think of it like a machine. He gave us an operator's manual called the Teda. He says, when you do these and these mitzvahs, you make the machine work better. If that's true with a regular engineer, building of a computer, of any machine, how much more so with God that created the whole thing? And gave us a tale and said, when you do so and so, the world becomes a better place. You become a better person. It, you align yourself with the purpose of that machine, so to speak. And if you do something, God forbid, wrong, it causes damage. So it's also a logical response. The fact that you're a ger does not change a thing. First of all, non-Jews also affect the world. When they do Shem they follow their guidelines. They change the world. So it's not a Jewish thing that we change the world and non-Jews don't. Not that it's relevant to your question, but my point is, it's not, it's not relevant to the issue of conversion, both from a Jewish point of view and a non-Jewish point of view. Now, the fact that you converted, and you did it al-pi by the guidelines of Rabbonim, and you went to a mikveh, it absolutely changed your whole existence. It's one of the strongest statements in the Gemara that speaks about actually the Jews at Matan Teda. They could have also asked the same question. By Matan Teda, all the Jewish people became converts. They had to go through the whole process of everything, bris, and kabbalah's mitzvahs, and mikveh. Different places discuss how did they do that. And it changed them. You become like a newborn child. The tater says so, and it makes sense when you do it, I'll be tater. The fact that you're questioning, you're questioning the tater? You're questioning yourself? You can, you can have self-doubt, but the tater says, absolutely, you're a gay. And again, is in every possible way a Jew. You're not a half Jew. You're not a three quarters. God forbid, through and through. Mamish like a born Jew without any difference. <clears throat> I understand psychologically you may have doubts, maybe because some people may have made you feel that way. God forbid, which is a isur gomur to make a ger feel in any way second class 
or your own inner insecurities. But that's issues you have to work through. It has nothing to do with the truth. The truth is you're a completely acceptable Jew and you do your best and every mitzvah you do is going to affect the world and yourself. Just to add one more thing, Avadja Hager, famous Avadja Hager, big, great scholar, wrote to the Rambam, not your question, but he also had a second-guessing question. He wrote to the Rambam, he feels that with everything he's done as a Ger, he's missing one thing. Yichus. You all born Jews, go back to Avram, Yitzhak, Yankiv, you're great, you have great pedigree, great lineage. Great Yichus. Avram, Yitzhak, Yankiv, the Shvatim, all the way down. I don't have this Yichus. And the Rambam answers him, and it's not tongue-in-cheek, and it's not being cute. He says, Adrabe, your Yichus goes straight to God. The Misha, Omar, Vahoya Elam. I always use this actually in context of healing that some of us were zeche merit to get nurturing from our parents. So in addition to God giving us life and God giving us dignity and purpose, our parents reinforced it so beautiful. But some people grow up in an abusive home and their parents did the opposite. So there, they don't have, so to speak, that benefit that parents reinforced, validated, nurtured, cultivated the dignity and self-respect of these children. But as the Rambam writes in Abavadi again, but you have God protecting you. Your yichus then bypasses humans and goes straight to Misha Amar Vahaya Elam, the one who created the world. So in a way, your healing comes straight from the source without intermediaries of yichus. Now everyone should have great yichus, but if that's a situation, there is a merit in that as well and even a mila. So I just wanted to add that into the equation. Okay. Let's do some follow-up now. A number of follow-up. We'll first start with follow-up to writing pidgin to other rebbes. This is back in episode 223. So I already did a follow-up, I believe, in 224, but there was more, and I didn't cover it all, so I'm going to cover some now. <clears throat> I stated my position on the matter, my position, meaning the sources I, I brought and cited, um, which is a subtle issue, but there's people wrote some different comments, and I'm going to read them to you. And without too much commentary on my end, just to fulfill, like I said, like I said earlier, I believe this is a partnership, and I wish and I and I welcome and invite everybody to participate. That everybody can bring to the table different angles, different comments, may even be different opinions. And I'm the first to accept any thought that is legitimate, anything that may I may have missed from the Rebbe or from the Rabbeim. So someone wrote this is in Hebrew, and I'll just translate it loosely. An answer that the Alter Rebbe to one, wrote to one of his chassidim, whose name was Avmeisha. I'm not sure, did this person write a source? Hmm. I don't have a source for this. Oh yeah, he says, It looks like the source is from Adnan Strashel, Levi, but I don't have an exact page in the letter that he wrote. Maybe it's in one of his svarim. So I'll look up, but I'll tell you what the, the answer goes like this. It says, the answer the Alter Rebbe gave was Balpeh, orally, to one of his great students. Oh, yeah, clearly. And he wrote it, and the Rabban documented the answer he got from the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe, uh, here's some background. The Chosid mentioned was for a time by the Alter Rebbe, and then he went to learn a different Adera Hashem by another one of the students of the Magid. But then 
he was drawn, he was attracted to return back to the Alter Rebbe. But he was afraid after he left and went to another tzaddik that maybe the Alter Rebbe will refuse to accept him. So, so the Chassid wrote all this to Alter Rebbe and also to his student Rabban, Mr. And here's the answer that the Alter Rebbe gave. I said, Yudua, the cold darkie bakay, this Leila Hakpidal and the sail is a lossy. It's known to everyone that Darkie is his holy way, that he does not mind going to another. Vagam Leila Ishtalashi Yusa, I love Dafka. And also not to make a special effort that they should go Dafka to Al Tareb. Because his way is not to be medagdic like other Gdalin in the land, for the, whatever reason, that this Kashus is Dafka to them. And they and they are They care if you go somewhere else, and not another way. That's yeah. The Alter Rebbe's approach was always yemin mekareves, meaning the right side brings close. Shakivas alikim yechpots yechpots Always a positive way to shine light and to give advice everyone according to their needs. Okay, fine. So we include this into the discussion. Someone else writes to go back to Vov Tevis Tovshin Mem Zayin. That looks like right after the second day after the Hey Tevis. I'm not sure what it says there. The Rebbe clearly said something then about this. I'll have to look that up. If anyone knows what it's about, please send me a note. Um, someone else writes that the good Rabbi Jacobson should have elaborated on what is this Kashus to your Rebbe, how a Chosid connects on all five levels of his soul to his master, his teacher, his Rebbe. Once that deep and holy connection is in place, the desire of having another Rebbe redeeming your soul becomes a non-issue. Also, as a Labavitcher Chosid, we believe that even though there are many holy Rebbes and Tzaddikim, the Tzaddik, that is the foundation of your generation, is one and only one. Tzaddik, you say in the singular. Okay, another person writes, I am friends with a Shliach in Israel. He had a friend, could be a fellow Shliach, but don't remember, who did not have children for many years. My friend offered to take him to all of the Kfarim in Israel. His friend's response, I will have children from my Rebbe's Baruchas only. Okay? Another person writes, In regard to the, the mention that going for a Baruch is easy, there's not much effort, actually getting a Baruch means following the Rebbe's directive, such as learning Chitas, promoting Aves Yisrael, to Mifzoyim, and a lot of hard work. In other words, it's not just an easy thing. Okay, thank you for that. Another person writes, please learn the Maimer by Yem Ashti Asr, Hey Tovshin Lamed Aleph, the Rebbe's Maimer Tovshin Lamed Aleph, Yudalf Nissen, and this will clear lots of questions, because the entire view will become totally different from what it was before. Another person writes, what if the Rebbe offers it? Suppose you happen to be visiting another Rebbe. Not necessarily for the purpose of getting a bracha. Or you may be hosting a Rebbe in your home. If the Rebbe wants to give you a bracha, are we supposed to decline it? Okay. Before reading on, I will tell you there's a story like that. There was a gvir in our community who actually gave as a host a home to one of the Rebbes. And he wanted to give him a bracha. He says, Yechab my Rebbe, or I get brachas. So it was not taken in any negative way. He fully understood and respected it. I'll tell you another story that I heard from one of the Hechts, Rabbi Shlemy Zalman Hecht, was the oldest of the Hecht brothers, lived in Chicago, was a Rav there. And for many, many years, sent by the Friedrich Rebbe. <clears throat> and once, the Satmarov came to for Shabbos, 
And Mitzvah Shabbos, he was going to do a fundraiser and speak in the shul. So his, his gabai came and they checked out the shul and they asked Rabbi Hech, they said, the mechitza is too low for our Rebbe. We want you to hire the mechitza just for tonight. We'll pay for it, whatever. And Abshleim Azalma said, heard the following. When the Friedrich Rebbe was here in 1930 in Chicago, this is the shul he was in. And the mechitza was exactly like this. If it's good for my Rebbe, it's going to be good for your Rebbe. And if he doesn't want, he can go speak somewhere else. As a matter of fact, when the Satmarov heard that, he says, Halavai should have such chassid. So I wanted to throw that in. Number, number, another person writes, Chassid Shaita. You have this chus of having a tzaddik in your house. He gives you a brocha. It's a contradiction to his kashus. In your view, Rabdavid Avachetzer, a brocha is worse than a hedjet. Krumakop. He's basically saying that absolutely you should be able to get a brocha. Okay, well, you know what? There may be different opinions on that matter. Anything more? That's it. That covers this. Okay. I'm glad we got different angles into this. Anyone again wants to contribute? Enter the fray, as they say. Please, by all means. Next follow-up is going to be on Zionism. That was last two weeks ago. Episode 225. And you can see all these episodes at my life. I'm sorry, meaningfullife.com slash my life. And you can go to the video, you click on the YouTube version, it's actually time-stamped, you can go straight to the area, the section you want to uh, watch or listen to. It also can all be down, downloaded as podcasts. All that information is available on our site. Okay. So, why am I mentioning that? Because these follow-ups, obviously, if you're, if you're hearing about this the first time, you'd probably want to go back and hear the original when I spoke about it then the follow-up will make much more sense. So the next follow-up is on Zionism. We spoke about Zionism, the Rebbe's approach. Is there a difference between the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe Rashab? And as I said, absolutely not. And uh, the times are different and things on the ground changed. But go back there to do justice to the entire discussion. So I've got a, a relatively longer note. And I, uh, you know, I'll read it because I think it's relevant and why not? Okay, here we are. As you noticed, I especially spent, talk, chose a few less new questions to be able to cover all these follow-ups so we can then use future episodes to cover only new questions. But follow-ups are part of the process, and frankly, I find them very interesting. They also fill in gaps and opportunity to elaborate and uh, do more justice to every given subject. Zionism. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your eloquent and insightful classes as well as your willingness to address topics that so many shy away from. It is, it is refreshing, it is enlightening, and it is enjoyable. In the last episode, you addressed the seemingly differing approaches to Zionism of the Rebbe and his predecessors. At several points, you mentioned the divine providence and miracles involved with the ingathering of the exiles, the Six-Day War, etc. What is puzzling to me is the seeming lack of credit given to the Zionist leaders, who are at the very least God's agents in making these miracles happen. I have heard this from several Chabad rabbis, and I always wonder, wondered, the following thing. When discussing the achievements of Chabad, credit is invariably given to the Rebbe as well as well it should be. I don't usually hear Chabad rabbis talking about Chabad houses being built by divine providence. The people who dedicated themselves to building these institutions, beginning with the visionary who gave his all to that cause, are lauded and praised. Though God is undoubtedly responsible for these wonderful achievements, his human agents who worked hard to achieve them are given their fair share. One might say, which means the wine belongs to the owner, the thank you goes to the waiter who delivered it. But of course it's a lot more since we're dealing with free will and self-sacrifice. 
On the other hand, the early Zionist leaders aren't given the credit for achieving something incredible. These are men and women who devoted their lives to aiding the Jewish people. Why not credit them for it? While also stating that you disagree about their views. Conversely, when talking about the parts of the movement you strongly disagree with, why fault them? Why not blame that on the divine providence? But at least let's be fair. If they are to be blamed for the secular nature of the state, let them get the credit for saving lives, providing a safe haven for Jews, and sponsoring more Torah study than any institution in history. A few other points. You, number one, you mentioned, you know, before I continue to the points, let me react to that. I believe you probably did not read Rebbe Rashab's response to some of the, de- the defense presented to him about the Zionists in the introduction to Quintus Umayyad. Because he answers this directly. When you have somebody whose intention is to break Yiddishkeit and not intention to bring Allah, the fact that they may do one thing that's positive is despite them, not because of them. Very different than when someone's doing something for the intention of building Yiddishkeit. So everything is Azrach Pratis, everything starts with God and then the waiters that did it. But if the waiter's intention is not to give you the wine but to spill it on you or to defile it, it's very different. Now, we're not here to personalizing, and we're not here criticizing the individual, but to give credit for what? For the miracle of the Six-Day War? Yes, you give credit to the soldiers that fought it. You give credit to the people who planned it. But to give credit to people whose intention was to build a state that would go against Tehran Halacha, to say they did everything wrong, I'm not saying 100%. That God has done things even to people who are very anti-Yiddishkeit. I want to compare it to Havdal Pare and others... They also did things that ultimately benefited the Jews in one way or another. So you have to be very careful when you distinguish between the two. When you have a doctor that saves your life, yes, you thank him. You give him a, even if he's a doctor that's an atheist, and even if he's a doctor that defies God. But he came and saved your life. The same thing if any one of these leaders went and saved your life, absolutely. But this was more ideological. It wasn't just saving your life, and was it only due to them? So we're, yes, there is more critique because their intentions were the opposite of building Yiddishkeit. So I am not saying we have to go around and curse them. You never heard that. You have to go around and not give them any credit. You give them. But the question is, the credit, you can understand why some people are more controlled in their complimenting and crediting them. Which if you're reacting to those that curse and those that go mamish and do things that are, that are, are anti-Jews, if Herzl was here today, Theodor Herzl, we'd try to be Makarov. Nobody would go and, and curse him. That's not the Taylor way. Either some Jews that have that anti-Zionistic, we weren't talking about that approach. We are talking about the Chabad approach. So I just want to clarify there's something in between rejecting something completely and embracing it completely. Embracing it as a Taylor thing, we, we discussed that as well. But also the embracing and saying, giving them credit I wouldn't put that in the same category of the Rebbe building Chabad houses for the reasons I mentioned. I just wanted to make that distinction. So I think just to break it down, you have to realize, yes, there are people who are, when I say again, a doctor saving a life or a soldier saving your life or someone immediately, it really makes no difference who it is. It's God, of course, that did it, but the person needs to be thanked and given credit. Absolutely, that person saved your life. Someone helped you right now, someone pushed you out of the way from an accident or saved you or protected you doesn't have to be in Israel, anywhere. Of course you thank them. doesn't matter who it is, even if it's an anti-Semite. But if the person didn't come to, th- to save you, they came to hurt you. And by inadvertently, that also ends up helping some people. It's a very different approach. 
That's why I think it's very important to distinguish between these things. Let's go on to your comments. A few other points. Number one, you mentioned an early plan of Zionist leaders for mass baptism. Mass, mass baptism. Maybe it's good I didn't pronounce it right. I may, I may well be mistaken, but in studying the movement, I've never found evidence of such a plan. There's an entry in Herzl's diary from June 1895 where he mentions thinking about such a plan two years earlier, but it was never seriously discussed by anyone, and he seems to have given it, and he seems not to have given it earnest consideration. His diary entries from those days show a, fever, a feverish effort to find a solution to anti-Semitism. Some of his ideas were quite ludicrous, not least of all his idea for a Jewish state. In the words of Shlema Avineri in Herzl's Vision, page 101, most likely no one would never, no one would ever have known about it, the mass baptism idea, had he not mentioned it in his diary. Well, my response to that, that can be analyzed, but the fact is it doesn't make a difference. He did mention it. So it just shows you where he's coming from. The fact that it wasn't followed up, it could very well be. As soon as he mentioned it to someone, they laughed at him that it's never possible. Which I believe is what it says in some of the accounts. But it makes no difference. It's, we're talking about Gilead Das of who we're dealing with here. Number two, you're right. The Uganda plan was entertained by Herzl as a desperate and temporary solution after the Kishinev, prog- Kishinev prog- pogrom. Mentioning it as evidence of secular Zionism detachment from Zion disregards three important points. Number A, the plan was favored by Herzl and Nordahl, both of whom were secular but not at all anti-religious. Favored is not the right word. They wanted to investigate it. B, the vehement opposition to the plan, the biggest split the movement had yet faced, came from the majority of the Russian Zionists, the Tsiyen et Tsiyen, many of whom were in fact quite anti-religious. C, the plan was supported by the religious Zionists. Shimoni's the Zionist ideology, page 335. The Uganda plan, when you take into account the ignorance of Herzl and some of the other so-called Zionist leaders and the baptism idea and some other things that Herzl did, you see a picture. We're not talking here about a, a Talmud Chochem altogether not. We're talking about an Amor that's complete ignorant. Two, a person who was not interested. I don't know if he's anti-religious. Maybe he's just completely secular. He had no idea what religion was. Maybe if he knew what religion was, he would have been a great Chos. Again, we're not personalizing this. But to say that these are people that were, their intentions were the building of Yiddishkeit. I mean, that was the point. And again, we're not here trying to demonize them. It's not a demonizing. This is not that approach of demonizing. We're just talking about putting things into context. Okay. Three. The above points have sources. This, is one, this one is more of an opinion. Zionism was a reaction against assimilation. Many, of the, many or most of the young Jews who joined the movement would likely not have remained religious, but assimilated into the general society to the extent possible. Much more bitter than the fight with the religious was the fight with the Bundists. The Bundists, for example. Perhaps it was their very attachment to Judaism and Jewishness, as they understood it, not in the traditional sense, that made them more of a threat. Number four. Israel is a secular state, and yet marriage and divorce are conducted by rabbinical courts. Passover laws are kept. The national buses and airlines do not travel on Shabbat. Yeshiva students are exempt from military service. These and many other things are a direct result of a political negotiations between the religious and secular Zionists. Thus, the religious people who joined the movement seem to have been vindicated, at least in part, by influencing matters significantly. Well, let me react to that. You could argue they could have affected matters either way because their numbers keep growing. doesn't mean that it had to be the way to be religious Zionists. Chabad is not considered part of the religious, Zion, secular, religious Zion, modern Zionists, and yet it has also had tremendous impact. 
Again, we're not talking about going to war. We're talking about ideology in its purest form. I think a lot of your reaction is to the people you see going to war against Zionism, which is the Torekat traveling to Iran, protesting with, uh, with Palestinians, this, this virulent anti-Zionism. Okay, five, you're right. None of the above seeks to deny the obvious. Most of the movement was secular. Many were anti-religious, but there were many shades of opinion and nuances in the debate. Correct, I say that. And even the very anti-religious made some exceptional contributions to our people, for which they deserve to be praised. Wishing you continued success in your wonderful work and good health to you and your family. Much love, plainly. Plainly means anonymous. Appreciate your comments. I think I reacted to the most that were relevant to me, to what I discussed, and but I thank you for broadening the picture. Okay, another follow-up was snoring. Last week's episode, 226. So we have received a reference. I said, if anyone has a source from the, from the Rebbe, someone sent a letter from the Rebbe, which is a letter from Vov Tevis, the 6th of Tevis, Tov Shechaf Aleph. Lekutesichus Chilek Lamed Vav, Lekutesichus, volume 36, page 297-298. I don't know if it's about snoring, I think it's more about apnea, but I'll read it. You're writing to me about your breathing. It's Kar Levade, it's almost certain that this is connected to Atzovim, to nerves. So when you read Krishna before you go to sleep, together with the general Kavona intention, that you are addressing, you're turning to one who's standing above you, as we say in Krishna, Hashem Silcha Yadimenecha, Hashem's shadow is right on your right arm, protecting you, Haripashit. So it's obvious, it's simple then, that everything that's negative has no room or place at all in your life. And also in general, everything everything in health has no not impact you. Like a like like a silk that melts and dissipates in the face of a flame. That's the power of this Zbonimus. Two, the Rebbe adds another point. Obviously, this is not shell, this does not negate things you have to do naturally, which means following the directives of a doctor, because that's the way the world was structured. I explained in Kuntur Semayin, in the Pesach, that God blesses us in the actions we do, which include going to a doctor. So you should also consult a doctor and ask him also, among other things, if it's worthwhile making a longer hefsek, a longer pause between eating and going to sleep. Normal, more than what is normal until now. So even though apnea does relate, apnea is people who who uh, lose their breath in the middle of the night, they catch their breath and they begin like hyperventilating, and some associate it with snoring and has connected with snoring, but I don't know if this is a purely directive related to snoring, or one more to a person's uh, physical nerves, as opposed to emotional nerves. So I don't think the Rebbe is referring to but Sovim here, um, <clears throat> well, that's a good question, whether Atsovim here means a nervous a nervous refle- reflex, or nerves as an anxiety. Um, but regardless, this is a letter, and uh, thank you for that. There was also a follow-up to something many, many weeks ago, Episode 177, I spoke about learning with your wife. So, I have a letter here from the 4th of Shvat Tov Shalamad Hay, printed in Igris Kedish, volume 30. The Rebbe writes, it's from 4th of Shvat Tov Shalamad Hay, yeah. Certainly in Hebrew, 
that you have a kfisit, a scheduled time to learn Torah several times a week together with your wife, several times a week. And you make an effort in lifting up her spirit and, and, and uh, inspire her, motivate her in matters of Torah mitzvahs, in a pleasant way, because the wife is is the foundation of the home. So thank you for that. So that's with the follow-ups for today. We're going to go now to the Chassidus question, and then we're going to go to the essays. So the Chassidus question for today is a follow-up to last week, even though we finished the topic of the Ramak and the Arizal and the Kabbalah. But someone wrote, I really appreciate these past four weeks gave me tremendous insight into Kabbalah and Chassidus in general, especially the Arizal and the Ramak and all the nuances that you covered. As well as the Aveda that you discussed, how to apply it to our personal lives. I would love to be able to, if you were able to elaborate on the difference between the diminished energies and abundant containers of Tikkun and Arizal, Kalim Eris Mo'atim and Kalim Merubim in Tikkun, which was the Arizal, and abundant energies, and diminished containers of Teo, which is the Ramak. Eris Merubim and Kelem Oatim and Ramak in Teo, as we said, as the Rebbe's Mechadish, that it means Teo Shebetikun and Tikun Shebetikun, as the Rebbe speaks in Shmini Mem Aleph, as I discussed last week. Um, so yes, in the Sikh of Yutas Kislev, Tovshin uh, Chai, that I also cited. The Rebbe does discuss it a little more, and I'll elaborate, and I want to also refer you to episode 194, where I discussed this also in more at length. Okay. Let's just speak about it in very palatable and specific terms. Teo and Tikkun are two entities, two dimensions, two paradigms. Obviously, Tikkun is the Kavona. Tikkun means repair, and in this case, it means Iskalalus, where everything is functioning properly. But in the process as we've discussed back then in my 94 and other times, in the process, like when you think of the birth of a child, the birth of a child doesn't happen. A child isn't just suddenly born, takes nine months. It begins with a cell, one cell, that is conceived by the fertilization of an egg by a seed. That cell multiplies, and then multiplies further, until finally it starts emerging the major limbs and then the other limbs. And each trimester, it continues to develop. You could say Seder Shtalshlus, which of course, the birth of a, the gestation of a child is God's created. So God, the Seder Shtalshlus also works that way. It didn't all pop into, we have Asiya, a full dimensional world. We know there's Ak, there's Akudim, Nekudim, Vrudim. So we're not going to talk about Ak right now. Ak is the Erkloli, is all-encompassing, like the blueprint, you could say, in a concentrated form. But Akudim, ten energies in one container. So all the energies, the whole fetus is there, but it's all in one cell. Like a seed. Then comes Nikudim, which is Toyu. So it breaks into ten energies, ten containers. So the fetus, or you're talking now the cosmic fetus, which is the world, the universe on a cosmic, macrocosmic level, like the child is now turned into ten. But the ten are still not able to really fully function. That's why a child in the second trimester, fourth month, fifth month, even though you may you see already in distinct limbs and so on, but then it's not yet viable. Then comes Virudim Tikkun, where everything not only is visible, 
the different limbs and organs, but they work together in a symbiotic way in a healthy being ready to be born. Just an example. So what do you see from this? That everything has its role and its stage. You need a kudim before, and then you need vrudim, tayu, and then you need tikkun. So sometimes the way tayu and tikkun are described, as we discussed in the previous weeks, that tayu is nekudis. The spheres are like ten nekudis. You don't see yet partsufim, structure. So there's no hiskalulus. They're not fully interactive. doesn't mean they're not at all. But they're, each one is its own. Chochme, bina, question, das, chesed, gvurit, teferes, etc. In Tikkun, they all work together like one unit. Complete interconnectivity. Interwoven. That's why you talk about three kavim. Chochma on the right, bina on the left, das in the center. It's a structure now. And a structure stands with three. So your body can stand. It's not just ten limbs or ten faculties. They're working all together in a symbiotic way. Kudus and Patsufi. And the another, or, or you could say Hischalkus and Hischalalus. Where the Nukudus of Tayu is Hischalkus. It's distinct. It's no longer like a Kudim, which is ten energies in one container. It's distinct, but it's not Hischalalus. They're not working together. <clears throat> Some places it actually speaks about an Ayin Beis from Kabbalah that Nukudim is like a Kudim except on another dimension because it's still, in a sense, premature. Another aspect of this is when you speak about Eris Merubim and Kelim That in Tayu, because the energy is so intense, let's go back to Akudim. What's an Akudim? It's one cell. But it's tremendous in quality. It's compact, concentrated. Everything that this child will become. In context of the macrocosm, everything Ishtalshals will become is all included. The ten energies of all the spheres, everything that will come later is all in one. So you can imagine how much energy is concentrated there. But that's why it, it's too strong. So in Akudim, nothing happens because it's only one cell. But in Nukudim, now that the containers are beginning to develop, the energy is still not fully tamed. So they're violent, they're strong, and they contradict each other. So you have iris morobim, a lot of energy, and very little container. It cannot stand, so it explodes, it shatters, it breaks. In tikkun, the energies now are tamed. Then, and the kalim are developed, so now they can, the child can be born. If a child, God forbid, is born at age at fourth month, the intensity and the kalim are too weak, you can't have a viable life. I mean, there'd be miracles, you could do things, but I'm talking about in the easiest fashion. I once heard from a neurologist, a neuroscientist, that one of the reasons, I'm sorry, he says when a baby is born, it loses 50% of its brain cells. Be able to come through the canal to emerge, which is why the head is much larger proportionally when it's in the womb, and it loses 50% of its brain cells. So I asked the, the, the neuroscientist, it was in Miami at a conference, is that connected, you think, can be connected to the Talmud that says the child learns the entire Torah in its mother's womb and then made to forget upon birth, learns the entire Torah, and then the cells die. We don't say die, but they get concealed. She said maybe, and I spoke about it at the time, just an interesting aside. So what do you see? That the energies have to go weaker and the kalim have to become stronger to the proper balance. But here comes the beautiful concept based on what we spoke about in the previous weeks. Then you could say, okay, so Atsilas Tikkun has diminished lights, strong containers, so we have a viable life. That's it. No, 
The kavana is now that the container should begin to expand, grow, and be able to contain more energy. To the point you can even get the energy of teyu should also be included in the kalim of tikkun. That's Eiris the Teyu and Kalim the Tikkun that the Rebbe speaks about, Chofches Nisnun Aleph, and other times, about achieving the combination that you want the intensity. So an example for that would be the student is studying with the, student, with the teacher. The student's a beginner. The teacher has to take all the ideas and conceal most of the brilliance and diminish it in a tzimtzum in a way that the student can receive it in the Aleph, Beis, Gimel. Fine. But within those letters, within that basic concepts, lies more. As the student continues to grow, his kalim expands, he grows older, becomes 40 years old, or 40 years from when he learned it. Why? Because within the idea, it means till 40 years old, till 40, you don't fully appreciate the idea. But it's in there. It was, it's concentrated in there just like in the seed. However, it was not yet fully expanded upon until the students' kalim continue to grow, and then they can receive the air, not just the air that was given, and reveal to the student, but also the deeper air to the atzmizdik air, to the highest levels, even of air ablikvul, as Chassidus explains. Look at Chola Am Roim, Tofresh Ayin Hei, and Ayin Chemshach Ayin Beis, Shvus, second Shvus, Maimer there. They even get the highest levels of air, like he says in the beginning of Samagvav, not just the air that was there, but even the air chodesh that wasn't even there before. The Rebbe spoke about this, Tofshin Chai, Yutas Kislev, in context of Kvar Chabad. We're speaking that you have to have Breta Kalim, build Kalim, and then it'll be Mamshech first, the Eris Ma'atim of Atzilis, and then the Eris Merubim even of Tayu. So in Tayu, you have a lot of air, because the Kali is very weak. You need to have the Kali be strong, and then you can bring in a lot more air. So that's the application. The three, the th- uh, and again, I refer you to episode 194. Let's now do the essays. Again, three essays. The essays are posted as we do them every week on MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And if you subscribe to our weekly emails, you can you get them you get them in your inbox as they are posted. So I encourage you to do that. So the three essays, the first one is The Heart of Chesed, Giving Without Giving Too Much, Chaya, Chaya D. Nelkin, age 19, Brooklyn, New York, Seminary Chaya Mushkit Svas. She writes, One of the three main identifying factors of our nation is that we are full of kindness and compassion. Loving our fellow just like ourselves is a general idea of the Torah, and giving to others is a basic principle of our lives. But how do we know if perhaps we are being too kind? What is the balance of giving to others, but at the same time not giving too much? How do we know that the limit of giving to others, what the limit of giving to others is, whether it's a friend, a relative, or coworker, whether it's giving spiritually, materially, or emotionally? And that's what this essay is all about. Taking chsidis and applying it to a bunch of situations, especially the story of the red heifer, of chesed and gvura, really almost like a blueprint of giving. And she does it, she does it in a very effective way, like, like almost a shulchanarach, like, Sifim, different uh, different points of how one should give in a healthy way. Good, so I commend you for that. That's essay number one that we do. Essay number two for the tonight for tonight, for this program is how to stay focused in a world of distractions. Sophia Katz, Brooklyn, New York. The age is um, 
22. Landers College Development Coordinator. Actually, 24. 24 years old. I don't know what I'm saying. What am I saying? 22. Sorry. Okay. Is it possible to find focus to find your place of calm amidst the distracting outside world? Amidst the subway commutes, incessant billboards and advertisements. So it's about focus. In order to provide some possible solutions to how one can achieve focus, we will look at two Hasidic discourses, Teir Shalom, a book recorded, of recorded talks by the fifth Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Rashab, and the discourse Mayim Rabbim by the Rebbe, seventh Lubavitch Rebbe. And she goes through a structure of understanding how this gives us focus. Introspection helps us achieve focus. Recognizing the spark, allowing this to be our guide to focus, and then a practical step-by-step guide of what is premium to steps to success and change. Meditation, some practical exercises. I like this essay a lot, so thank you for that. And finally, let us do the last essay. The last essay is in Hebrew. Wonder, Renewal, and Faith. Plia Hishachos Vamuna by Tzvi Shpalter. Eight Tzvi Shpalter, age 72. Jerusalem, Israel. Engineer in Dimus. Okay. And the name, as the name implies, he goes to Chassidus Chabad that talks about Ani Hatinuk. I pray, not with all the complex spheres and all the complex levels, but I pray like a child standing before his father. And explains how this is fundamental in a person's connection to always maintain that wonder and the renewal in faith. How that imbues a person with a sense of enchantment and a sense of, of newness and vitality in everything they do. Very well applied to our personal lives to give you some uh, some injection and spurt of energy. So it's a good motivating essay, and thank you. With that, we will conclude, being that when Chedesh Elul, and the countdown begins, Chayel, it says, that's the last 12 days of the month after Chayel. Every day after Chayel corresponds to another day of the year. So Chayel is Kenegat Tishrei, Yutas El Cheshven, so in this month of introspection and accounting and preparation for the new year, may we use these last days in the fullest. And I want to welcome and invite you to receive our 60-day email, which helps you go through this journey of El and Tishrei, a spiritual guide to the high holidays, based on my book, 60 Days, by that name. And there's a daily email, there's a daily audio that you can subscribe to. All these things are free. The book, of course, is not free. That's up to you to get. I definitely encourage you to get it. May everybody be blessed with Aksiv Vichsimateva. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And um, and everyone be blessed with uh, only good news and a good gebench to the yard.